Chapter Three of Isaac Walton's Lives of John Donne, Henry Wotton, Richard Hooker, and George Herbert by Isaac Walton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Richard Hooker, Part Two. His merits to the Queen and her favors to him were such that she called him her little black husband and called his servants her servants and she saw so visible and blessed a sincerity shine in all his cares and endeavours for the churches and for her good that she was supposed to trust him with the very secrets of her soul and to make him her confessor of which she gave many fair testimonies and of which one was that she would never eat flesh in lent without obtaining a license from her little black husband and would often say she pitied him because she trusted him and had thereby eased herself by laying the burden of all her clergy cares upon his shoulders which he managed with prudence and piety i shall not keep myself within the promised rules of brevity in this account of his interest with her majesty and his care of the church's rites if in this digression i should enlarge to particulars and therefore my desire is that one example may serve for a testimony of both and that the reader may the better understand it he may take notice that not many years before his being made archbishop there passed an act or acts of parliament intending the better preservation of the church lands by recalling a power which was vested in others to sell or lease them by lodging and trusting the future care and protection of them only in the crown and amongst many that made a bad use of this power or trust of the queen's the earl of leicester was one and the bishop having by his interest with her majesty put a stop to the earl's sacrilegious designs they too fell to an open opposition before her after which they both quitted the room not friends in appearance but the bishop made a sudden and seasonable return to her majesty for he found her alone and spoke to her with great humility and reverence to this purpose i beseech your majesty to hear me with patience and to believe that yours and the church's safety are dearer to me than my life but my conscience dearer than both and therefore give me leave to do my duty and tell you that princes are deputed nursing fathers of the church and owe it a protection and therefore god forbid that you should be so much as passive in her ruin when you may prevent it or that i should behold it without horror and detestation or should forbear to tell your majesty of the sin and danger of sacrilege and though you and myself are born in an age of frailties when the primitive piety and care of the church's lands and immunities are much decayed yet madam let me beg that you would first consider that there are such sins as profaneness and sacrilege and that if there were not they could not have names in holy writ and particularly in the new testament and i beseech you to consider 
that though our Saviour said he judged no man, and to testify it, would not judge nor divide the inheritance betwixt the two brethren, nor would judge the woman taken in adultery. Yet in this point of the church's rights he was so zealous that he made himself both the accuser and the judge, and the executioner too, to punish these sins. Witnessed in that he himself made the whip to drive the profaners out of the temple, overthrew the tables of the money-changers, and drove them out of it. And I beseech you to consider that it was St. Paul that said to those Christians of his time that were offended with idolatry, and yet committed sacrilege, Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Supposing, I think, sacrilege the greater sin. This may occasion your majesty to consider that there is such a sin as sacrilege, and to incline you to prevent the curse that will follow it, I beseech you also to consider that Constantine, the first Christian emperor, and Helena, his mother, that King Edward, and Edward the Confessor, and indeed many others of your predecessors, and many private Christians, have also given to God and to his church much land and many immunities which they might have given to those of their own families and did not, but gave them forever as an absolute right and sacrifice to God. And with these immunities and lands they have entailed a curse upon the alienators of them. God prevent your majesty and your successors from being liable to that curse which will cleave unto church lands as the leprosy to the Jews. And to make you that are trusted with their preservation the better to understand the danger of it, I beseech you forget not that to prevent these curses the church's land and power have been also endeavoured to be preserved as far as human reason and the law of this nation have been able to preserve them by an immediate and most sacred obligation on the consciences of the princes of this realm. For they that consult Magna Carta shall find that, as all your predecessors were at their coronation, so you also were sworn before all the nobility and bishops then present, and in the presence of God, and in his stead, to him that anointed you, to maintain the church lands and the rights belonging to it. And this you yourself have testified openly to God at the holy altar, by laying your hands on the Bible, then lying upon it. And not only Magna Carta, but many modern statutes have denounced a curse upon those that break Magna Carta, a curse like the leprosy that was entailed on the Jews, for as that, so these curses have and will cleave to the very stones of those buildings that have been consecrated to God. And the father's sin of sacrilege hath and will prove to be entailed on his son and family. And now, madam, what account can be given for the breach of this oath at the last great day, either by your majesty or by me, if it be willfully or but negligently violated, I know not. And therefore, good madam, let not the late Lord's exceptions against the failings of some few clergymen prevail with you to punish posterity 
for the errors of the present age let particular men suffer for their particular errors but let god and his church have their inheritance and though i pretend not to prophecy yet i beg posterity to take notice of what is already become visible in many families that church land added to an ancient and just inheritance hath proved like a moth fretting a garment and secretly consumed both or like the eagle that stole a coal from the altar and thereby set her nest on fire which consumed both her young eagles and herself that stole it and though i shall forbear to speak reproachfully of your father yet i beg you to take notice that a part of the church's rites added to the vast treasures left him by his father hath been conceived to bring an unavoidable consumption upon both notwithstanding all his diligency to preserve them and consider that after the violation of those laws to which he had sworn in magna carta god did so far deny him his restraining grace that as king saul after he was forsaken of god fell from one sin to another so he till at last he fell into greater sin than i am willing to mention madam religion is the foundation and cement of human societies and when they that serve at god's altar shall be exposed to poverty then religion itself will be exposed to scorn and become contemptible as you may already observe it to be in too many poor vicarages in this nation and therefore as you are by a late act or acts of parliament entrusted with a great power to preserve or waste the church lands yet dispose of them for jesus sake as you have promised to men and vowed to god that is as the donors intended let neither falsehood nor flattery beguile you to do otherwise but put a stop to god's and the levite's portion i beseech you and to the approaching ruins of his church as you expect comfort at the last great day for kings must be judged pardon this affectionate plainness my most dear sovereign and let me beg to be still continued in your favour and the lord still continue you in his the queen's patient hearing this affectionate speech and her future care to preserve the church's rights which till then had been neglected may appear a fair testimony that he made hers and the church's good the chiefest of his cares and that she also thought so and of this there were such daily testimonies given as begot betwixt them so mutual a joy and confidence that they seemed born to believe and do good to each other she not doubting his piety to be more than all his opposers which were many nor doubting his prudence to be equal to the chiefest of her council who were then as remarkable for active wisdom as those dangerous times did require or this nation did ever enjoy and in this condition he continued twenty years in which time he saw some flowings but many more ebbings of her favour towards all men that had opposed him especially the earl of leicester so that god seemed still to keep him in her favour 
that he might preserve the remaining church lands and immunities from sacrilegious alienations and this good man deserved all the honour and power with which she gratified and trusted him for he was a pious man and naturally of noble and grateful principles he eased her of all her church cares by his wise manage of them he gave her faithful and prudent counsels in all the extremities and dangers of her temporal affairs which were very many he lived to be the chief comfort of her life in her declining age and to be then most frequently with her and her assistant at her private devotions he lived to be the greatest comfort of her soul upon her deathbed to be present at the expiration of her last breath and to behold the closing of those eyes that had long looked upon him with reverence and affection and let this also be added that he was the chief mourner at her sad funeral nor let this be forgotten that within a few hours after her death he was the happy proclaimer that king james her peaceful successor was heir to the crown let me beg of my reader to allow me to say a little and but a little more of this good bishop and i shall then presently lead him back to mr hooker and because i would hasten i will mention but one part of the bishop's charity and humility but this of both he built a large almshouse near to his own palace at croydon in surrey and endowed it with maintenance for a master and twenty-eight poor men and women which he visited so often that he knew their names and dispositions and was so truly humble that he called them brothers and sisters and whensoever the queen descended to that lowliness to dine with him at his palace in lambeth which was very often he would usually the next day show the like lowliness to his poor brothers and sisters at croydon and dine with them at his hospital at which time you may believe there was joy at the table and at this place he built also a fair free school with a good accommodation and maintenance for the master and scholars which gave just occasion for boise sisi then ambassador for the french king and resident here at the bishop's death to say the bishop had published many learned books but a free school to train up youth and an hospital to lodge and maintain aged and poor people were the best evidences of christian learning that a bishop could leave to posterity this good bishop lived to see king james settled in peace and then fell into an extreme sickness at his palace in lambeth of which when the king had notice he went presently to visit him and found him in his bed in a declining condition and very weak and after some short discourse betwixt them the king at his departure assured him he had a great affection for him and a very high value for his prudence and virtues and would endeavour to beg his life of god for the good of his church to which the good bishop replied pro ecclesia dei pro ecclesia dei which were the last words he ever spake therein testifying that as in his life so at his death his chiefest care was of god's church 
This John Whitgift was made archbishop in the year 1583, in which busy place he continued twenty years and some months, and in which time you may believe he had many trials of his courage and patience, but his motto was Vincit qui patitur, and he made it good. Many of his trials were occasioned by the then powerful Earl of Leicester, who did still, but secretly, raise and cherish a faction of nonconformists to oppose him, especially one Thomas Cartwright, a man of noted learning, sometime contemporary with the bishop in Cambridge, and of the same college of which the bishop had been master, in which place there began some emulations, the particulars I forbear, and at last open and high oppositions betwixt them, and in which you may believe Mr. Cartwright was most faulty, if his expulsion out of the university can incline you to it. And in this discontent after the Earl's death, which was 1588, Mr. Cartwright appeared a chief cherisher of a party that were for the Geneva church government, and to effect it he ran himself into many dangers, both of liberty and life, appearing at the last to justify himself and his party in many remonstrances, which he caused to be printed, and to which the bishop made a first answer, and Cartwright replied upon him. And then the bishop having rejoined to his first reply, Mr. Cartwright either was or was persuaded to be satisfied, for he wrote no more, but left the reader to be judge which had maintained their cause with most charity and reason. After some silence, Mr. Cartwright received from the bishop many personal favors and betook himself to a more private living, which was at Warwick, where he was made master of an hospital, and lived quietly, and grew rich, and where the bishop gave him a license to preach upon promises not to meddle with controversies, but incline his hearers to piety and moderation. And this promise he kept during his life, which ended 1602, the bishop surviving him but some few months, each ending his days in perfect charity with the other. And now, after this long digression, made for the information of my reader concerning what follows, I bring him back to venerable Mr. Hooker, where we left him in the temple, and where we shall find him as deeply engaged in a controversy with Walter Travers, a friend and favorite of Mr. Cartwright's, as the bishop had ever been with Mr. Cartwright himself, and of which I shall proceed to give this following account. And first this, that though the pens of Mr. Cartwright and the bishop were now at rest, yet there was sprung up a new generation of restless men, that by company and clamors became possessed of a faith which they ought to have kept to themselves, but could not, men that were become positive in asserting that a papist cannot be saved insomuch that about this time at the execution of the Queen of Scots, the bishop that preached her funeral sermon, which was Dr. Howland, then Bishop of Peterborough, was reviled for not being positive for her damnation. And besides this boldness of their becoming gods, so far as to set limits to his mercies, there was not only one Martin Marprelate, 
but other venomous books daily printed and dispersed, books that were so absurd and scurrilous that the graver divines disdained them an answer. And yet these were grown into high esteem with the common people, till Tom Nash appeared against them all, who was a man of sharp wit and the master of a scoffing, satirical merry pen, which he employed to discover the absurdities of those blind, malicious, senseless pamphlets and sermons as senseless as they, Nash's answer being like his books, which bore these or like titles, an almond for a parrot, a fig for my godson, come crack me this nut, and the like, so that this merry wit made some sport and such a discovery of their absurdities as, which is strange, he put a greater stop to these malicious pamphlets than a much wiser man had been able. And now the reader is to take notice that at the death of Father Alvey, who was master of the temple, this Walter Travers was lecturer there for the evening sermons, which he preached with great approbation, especially of some citizens, and the younger gentlemen of that society, and for the most part approved by Mr. Hooker himself, in the midst of their oppositions. For he continued lecturer a part of his time, Mr. Travers being indeed a man of competent learning, of a winning behavior, and of a blameless life. But he had taken orders by the presbytery in Antwerp, and with them some opinions that could never be eradicated, and if in anything he was transported, it was in an extreme desire to set up that government in this nation, for the promoting of which he had a correspondence with Theodore Beza at Geneva, and others in Scotland, and was one of the chiefest assistants to Mr. Cartwright in that design. Mr. Travers had also a particular hope to set up this government in the temple, and to that end used his most zealous endeavors to be master of it, and his being disappointed by Mr. Hooker's admittance proved the occasion of a public opposition betwixt them in their sermons, many of which were concerning the doctrine and ceremonies of this church, insomuch that, as St. Paul withstood St. Peter to his face, so did they withstand each other in their sermons, for, as one hath pleasantly expressed it, the forenoon sermon spake Canterbury, and the afternoon Geneva. In these sermons there was little of bitterness, but each party brought all the reasons he was able to prove his adversary's opinion erroneous, and thus it continued a long time, till the oppositions became so visible, and the consequences so dangerous, especially in that place, that the prudent archbishop put a stop to Mr. Travers, his preaching by a positive prohibition, against which Mr. Travers appealed, and petitioned Her Majesty's Privy Council to have it recalled, where, besides his patron, the Earl of Leicester, he met also with many assisting friends. But they were not able to prevail with or against the archbishop, whom the Queen had entrusted with all church power and he had received so fair a testimony of Mr. Hooker's principles, and of his learning and moderation, that he withstood all solicitations. But 
The denying this position of Mr. Travers was unpleasant to divers of his party, and the reasonableness of it became at last to be so publicly magnified by them and many others of that party as never to be answered, so that, intending the bishops and Mr. Hooker's disgrace, they procured it to be privately printed and scattered abroad. And then Mr. Hooker was forced to appear and make as public an answer, which he did, and dedicated it to the archbishop, and it proved so full an answer, an answer that had in it so much of clear reason, and writ with so much meekness and majesty of style, that the bishop began to have him in admiration, and to rejoice that he had appeared in his cause, and disdained not earnestly to beg his friendship even a familiar friendship with a man of so much quiet learning and humility. To enumerate the many particular points in which Mr. Hooker and Mr. Travers dissented, all or most of which I have seen written, would prove at least tedious, and therefore I shall impose upon my reader no more than two which shall immediately follow, and by which he may judge of the rest. Mr. Travers accepted against Mr. Hooker, for that in one of his sermons he declared that the assurance of what we believe by the word of God is not to us so certain as that which we perceive by sense. And Mr. Hooker confesseth he said so, and endeavours to justify it by the reasons following. First, I taught that the things which God promises in his word are surer than what we touch, handle, or see. But are we so sure and certain of them? If we be, why doth God so often prove his promises to us, as he doth by arguments drawn from our sensible experience? For we must be surer of the proof than of the things proved. Otherwise it is no proof. For example, how is it that many men looking on the moon at the same time every one knoweth it to be the moon as certainly as the other doth but many believing one and the same promise have not all one and the same fulness of persuasion for how falleth it out that men being assured of anything by sense can be no surer of it than they are when as the strongest in faith that liveth upon the earth hath always need to labor, strive, and pray, that his assurance concerning heavenly and spiritual things may grow, increase, and be augmented. The sermon that gave him the cause of this his justification makes the case more plain, by declaring that there is, besides this certainty of evidence, a certainty of adherence in which, having most excellently demonstrated what the certainty of adherence is, he makes this comfortable use of it. Comfortable, he says, as to weak believers, who suppose themselves to be faithless, not to believe, when notwithstanding they have their adherence. The Holy Spirit hath his private operations, and worketh secretly in them, and effectually, too, though they want the inward testimony of it. Tell this, saith he, to a man that hath a mind too much dejected by a sad sense of his sin, 
to one that by a too severe judging of himself concludes that he wants faith because he wants the comfortable assurance of it and his answer will be do not persuade me against my knowledge against what i find and feel in myself i do not i know i do not believe mr hooker's own words follow well then to favour such men a little in their weakness let that be granted which they do imagine be it that they adhere not to god's promises but are faithless and without belief but are they not grieved for their unbelief they confess they are do they not wish it might and also strive that it may be otherwise we know they do whence cometh this but from a secret love and liking that they have of those things believed for no man can love those things which in his own opinion are not and if they think those things to be which they show they love when they desire to believe them then must it be that by desiring to believe they prove themselves true believers for without faith no man thinketh that things believed are which argument all the subtleties of infernal powers will never be able to dissolve this is an abridgment of part of the reasons mr hooker gives for his justification of this his opinion for which he was accepted against by mr travers mr hooker was also accused by mr travers for that he in one of his sermons had declared that he doubted not but that god was merciful to many of our forefathers living in popish superstition forasmuch as they sinned ignorantly and mr hooker in his answer professes it to be his judgment and declares his reasons for this charitable opinion to be as followeth but first he states the question about justification and works and how the foundation of faith without works is overthrown and then he proceeds to discover that way which natural men and some others have mistaken to be the way by which they hope to attain true and everlasting happiness and having discovered the mistake he proceeds to direct to that true way by which and no other everlasting life and blessedness is attainable and these two ways he demonstrates thus they be his own words that follow that the way of nature this the way of grace the end of that way salvation merited presupposing the righteousness of men's works their righteousness a natural ability to do them that ability the goodness of god which created them in such perfection but the end of this way salvation bestowed upon men as a gift presupposing not their righteousness but the forgiveness of their unrighteousness justification their justification not their natural ability to do good but their hearty sorrow for not doing and unfeigned belief in him for whose sake not doers are accepted which is their vocation their vocation the election of god taking them out of the number of lost children their election a mediator in whom to be elected this mediation inexplicable mercy this mercy supposing their misery for whom he vouchsafed to die and make himself a mediator and he also declareth there is no meritorious cause for our justification 
but Christ, no effectual, but his mercy, and says also, we deny the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we abuse, disannul, and annihilate the benefit of his passion, if by a proud imagination we believe we can merit everlasting life, or can be worthy of it. This belief, he declareth, is to destroy the very essence of our justification, and he makes all opinions that border upon this to be very dangerous. Yet, nevertheless, and for this he was accused, considering how many virtuous and just men, how many saints and martyrs, have had their dangerous opinions, amongst which this was one, that they hoped to make God some part of amends by voluntary punishments which they laid upon themselves, because by this, or the like erroneous opinions, which do by consequence overthrow the merits of Christ, shall man be so bold as to write on their graves, Such men are damned, there is for them no salvation. St. Austin says, Errare possum hereticus esse nolo, and except we put a difference betwixt them that err ignorantly, and them that obstinately persist in it, how is it possible that any man should hope to be saved? Give me a pope or cardinal whom great afflictions have made to know himself, whose heart God hath touched with true sorrow for all his sins, and filled with the love of Christ and his gospel, whose eyes are willingly opened to see the truth, and his mouth ready to renounce all error, this one opinion of merit accepted, which he thinketh God will require at his hands, and because he wanteth, trembleth, and is discouraged, and yet can say, Lord, cleanse me from all my secret sins. Shall I think because of this, or a like error, such men touch not so much as the hem of Christ's garment? If they do, wherefore should I doubt, but that virtue may proceed from Christ to save them? No, I will not be afraid to say to such a one, You err in your opinion, but be of good comfort, you have to do with a merciful God, who will make the best of that little which you hold well, and not with a captious sophister, who gathereth the worst out of everything in which you are mistaken. But it will be said, says Mr. Hooker, the admittance of merit in any degree overthroweth the foundation, excludeth from the hope of mercy, from all possibility of salvation. And now Mr. Hooker's own words follow. What, though they hold the truth sincerely in all other parts of Christian faith? Although they have in some measure all the virtues and graces of the Spirit, although they have all other tokens of God's children in them, although they be far from having any proud opinion that they shall be saved by the worthiness of their deeds, although the only thing that troubleth and molesteth them be a little too much dejection, somewhat too great a fear arising from an erroneous conceit that God will require a worthiness in them, which they are grieved to find wanting in themselves. Although they be not obstinate in this opinion, although they be willing and would be glad to forsake it, if any one reason were brought sufficient to disprove it, although the only cause why they do not forsake it ere they die 
be there ignorance of that means by which it might be disproved although the cause why the ignorance in this point is not removed be the want of knowledge in such as should be able and are not to remove it let me die says mr hooker if it be ever proved that simply an error doth exclude a pope or cardinal in such a case utterly from hope of life surely i must confess that if it be an error to think that god may be merciful to save men even when they err my greatest comfort is my error were it not for the love i bear to this error i would never wish to speak or to live i was willing to take notice of these two points as supposing them to be very material and that as they are thus contracted they may prove useful to my reader as also for that the answers be arguments of mr hooker's great and clear reason and equal charity other exceptions were also made against him by mr travers as that he prayed before and not after his sermons that in his prayers he named bishops that he kneeled both when he prayed and when he received the sacrament and says mr hooker in his defence other exceptions so like these as but to name i should have thought a greater fault than to commit them and it is not unworthy the noting that in the manage of so great a controversy a sharper reproof than this and one like it did never fall from the happy pen of this humble man that like it was upon a like occasion of exceptions to which his answer was your next argument consists of railing and of reasons to your railing i say nothing to your reasons i say what follows and i am glad of this fair occasion to testify the dove-like temper of this meek this matchless man and doubtless if almighty god had blessed the dissenters from the ceremonies and discipline of this church with a like measure of wisdom and humility instead of their pertinacious zeal then obedience and truth had kissed each other then peace and piety had flourished in our nation and this church and state had been blessed like jerusalem that is at unity with itself but this can never be expected till god shall bless the common people of this nation with a belief that schism is a sin and they not fit to judge what is schism and bless them also with a belief that there may be offences taken which are not given and that laws are not made for private men to dispute but to obey and this also may be worthy of noting that these exceptions of mr travers against mr hooker proved to be felix error for they were the cause of his transcribing those few of his sermons which we now see printed with his books and of his answer to mr travers his supplication and of his most learned and useful discourse of justification of faith and works and by their transcription they fell into such hands as have preserved them from being lost as too many of his other matchless writings were and from these i have gathered many observations in this discourse of his life after the publication of his answer to the petition of mr travers 
Mr. Hooker grew daily into greater repute with the most learned and wise of the nation, but it had a contrary effect in very many of the temple that were zealous for Mr. Travers and for his church discipline, insomuch that though Mr. Travers left the place, yet the seeds of discontent could not be rooted out of that society by the great reason, and as great meekness, of this humble man. For though the chief ventures gave him much reverence and encouragement, yet he there met with many neglects and oppositions by those of Master Travers' judgment, insomuch that it turned to his extreme grief, and that he might unbeguile and win them, he designed to write a deliberate, sober treatise of the Church's power to make canons for the use of ceremonies, and by law to impose an obedience to them as upon her children, and this he proposed to do in eight books of the law of ecclesiastical polity, intending therein to show such arguments as should force an assent from all men, if reason, delivered in sweet language, and void of any provocation, were able to do it, and that he might prevent all prejudice he wrote before it a large preface, or epistle, to the dissenting brethren, wherein there were such bowels of love, and such a commixture of that love with reason, as was never exceeded but in holy writ, and particularly by that of St. Paul, to his dear brother and fellow-laborer Philemon, than which none ever was more like this epistle of Mr. Hooker's so that his dear friend and companion in his studies, Dr. Spencer, might after his death justly say, what admirable height of learning and depth of judgment dwelt in the lowly mind of this truly humble man, great in all wise men's eyes except his own, and with what gravity and majesty of speech his tongue and pen uttered heavenly mysteries, whose eyes, in the humility of his heart, were always cast down to the ground, how all things that proceeded from him were breathed as from the spirit of love, as if he, like the bird of the Holy Ghost, the dove, had wanted gall. Let those that knew him not in his person judge by these living images of his soul his writings. The foundation of these books was laid in the temple. But he found it no fit place to finish what he had there designed. He therefore earnestly solicited the archbishop for a remove from that place, to whom he spake to this purpose. My lord, when I lost the freedom of my cell, which was my college, yet I found some degree of it in my quiet country parsonage. But I am weary of the noise and opposition of this place and indeed God and nature did not intend me for contentions, but for study and quietness. My lord, my particular contest with Mr. Travers here have proved the more unpleasant to me, because I believe him to be a good man, and that belief hath occasioned me to examine mine own conscience concerning his opinions, and to satisfy that, I have consulted the scripture and other laws, both human and divine, whether the conscience of him and others of his judgment ought to be so far complied with 
as to alter our frame of church government our manner of god's worship our praising and praying to him and our established ceremonies as often as his and other tender consciences shall require us and in this examination i have not only satisfied myself but have begun a treatise in which i intend a justification of the laws of our ecclesiastical polity in which design god and his holy angels shall at the last great day bear me that witness which my conscience now does that my meaning is not to provoke any but rather to satisfy all tender consciences and i shall never be able to do this but where i may study and pray for god's blessing upon my endeavours and keep myself in peace and privacy and behold god's blessings spring out of my mother earth and eat my own bread without oppositions and therefore if your grace can judge me worthy of such a favour let me beg it that i may perfect what i have begun about this time the parsonage or rectory of boscombe in the diocese of sarum and six miles from that city became void the bishop of sarum is patron of it but in the vacancy of that see which was three years betwixt the translation of bishop pierce to the see of york and bishop caldwell's admission into it the disposal of that and all benefices belonging to that see during this said vacancy came to be disposed of by the archbishop of canterbury and he presented richard hooker to it in the year fifteen ninety one and richard hooker was also in this said year instituted july seventeen to be a minor prebend of salisbury the core to it being netherhaven about ten miles from that city which prebend was of no great value but intended chiefly to make him capable of a better preferment in that church in this boscombe he continued till he had finished four of his eight proposed books of the laws of ecclesiastical polity and these were entered into the register book in stationers hall the ninth of march fifteen ninety two but not published till the year fifteen ninety four and then were with the before-mentioned large and affectionate preface which he directs to them that seek as they term it the reformation of the laws and orders ecclesiastical in the church of england of which books i shall yet say nothing more but that he continued his laborious diligence to finish the remaining four during his life of all which more properly hereafter but at boscombe he finished and published but only the first four being then in the thirty-ninth year of his age he left boscombe in the year fifteen ninety five by a surrender of it into the hands of bishop caldwell and he presented benjamin russell who was instituted into it the twenty-third of june in the same year the parsonage of bishops bourne in kent three miles from canterbury is in that archbishop's gift but in that latter end of the year fifteen ninety four dr william redman the rector of it was made bishop of norwich by which means the power of presenting to it was pro ea vice in the queen and she presented richard hooker whom she loved well to this good living of bourne the seventh july fifteen ninety five in which living he continued till his death 
without any addition of dignity or profit. And now having brought our Richard Hooker from his birthplace to this where he found a grave, I shall only give some account of his books, and of his behavior in this parsonage of Bourne, and then give a rest both to myself and my reader. His first four books and large epistle have been declared to be printed at his being at Boscombe anno 1594. Next I am to tell that at the end of these four books there was, when he first printed them, this advertisement to the reader, I have for some causes thought it at this time more fit to let go these first four books by themselves than to stay both them and the rest till the whole might be together published. Such generalities of the cause in question as are here handled, it will be perhaps not amiss to consider apart by way of introduction unto the books that are to follow concerning particulars. In the meantime, the reader is requested to mend the printer's errors as noted underneath. And I am next to declare that his fifth book, which is larger than his first four, was first also printed by itself, anno 1597, and dedicated to his patron, for till then he chose none, the archbishop. These books were read with an admiration of their excellency in this, and their just fame spread itself also into foreign nations. And I have been told, more than forty years past, that either Cardinal Allen or learned Dr. Stapleton, both Englishmen and in Italy about the time when Mr. Hooker's four books were first printed, meeting with this general fame of them, were desirous to read an author that both the reformed and the learned of their own Romish church did so much magnify, and therefore caused them to be sent for to Rome, and after reading them, boasted to the Pope, which then was Clement the Eighth, that though he had lately said he never met with an English book whose writer deserved the name of author, yet there now appeared a wonder to them, and it would be so to his holiness if it were in Latin, for a poor, obscure English priest had writ four such books of laws and church polity, and in a style that expressed such a grave and so humble a majesty, with such clear demonstration of reason, that in all their readings they had not met with any that exceeded him. And this begot in the Pope an earnest desire that Dr. Stapleton should bring the said four books, and looking on the English, read a part of them to him in Latin, which Dr. Stapleton did to the end of the first book, at the conclusion of which the Pope spake to this purpose, There is no learning that this man hath not searched into, nothing too hard for his understanding. This man, indeed, deserves the name of an author. His books will get reverence by age, for there is in them such seeds of eternity, that if the rest be like this, they shall last till the last fire shall consume all learning. Nor was this high, the only testimony and commendations given to his books, for at the first coming of King James into this kingdom 
he inquired of the archbishop whitgift for his friend mr hooker that writ the books of church polity to which the answer was that he died a year before queen elizabeth who received the sad news of his death with very much sorrow to which the king replied and i receive it with no less that i shall want the desired happiness of seeing and discoursing with that man from whose books i have received such satisfaction indeed my lord i have received more satisfaction in reading a leaf or paragraph in mr hooker though it were but about the fashion of churches or church music or the like but especially of the sacraments than i have had in the reading particular large treatises written but of one of these subjects by others though very learned men and i observe there is in mr hooker no affected language but a grave comprehensive clear manifestation of reason and that backed with the authority of the scripture the fathers and schoolmen and with all law both sacred and civil and though many others write well yet in the next age they will be forgotten but doubtless there is in every page of mr hooker's book the picture of a divine soul such pictures of truth and reason and drawn in so sacred colours that they shall never fade but give an immortal memory to the author and it is so truly true that the king thought what he spake that as the most learned of the nation have and still do mention mr hooker with reverence so he also did never mention him but with the epithet of learned or judicious or reverend or venerable mr hooker nor did his son our late king charles the first ever mention him but with the same reverence enjoining his son our now gracious king to be studious in mr hooker's books and our learned antiquary mr camden in his annals fifteen ninety nine mentioning the death the modesty and other virtues of mr hooker and magnifying his books wished that for the honour of this and the benefit of other nations they were turned into the universal language which work though undertaken by many yet they have been weary and forsaken it but the reader may now expect it having been long since begun and lately finished by the happy pen of dr earl now lord bishop of salisbury of whom i may justly say and let it not offend him because it is such a truth as ought not to be concealed from posterity or those that now live and yet know him not that since mr hooker died none have lived whom god hath blessed with more innocent wisdom more sanctified learning or a more pious peaceable primitive temper so that this excellent person seems to be only like himself and our venerable richard hooker and only fit to make the learned of all nations happy in knowing what hath been too long confined to the language of our little island there might be many more and just occasions taken to speak of his books which none ever did or can commend too much but i decline them and hasten to an account of his christian behaviour and death at bourne in which place he continued his customary rules of mortification and self-denial 
was much in fasting, frequent in meditation and prayers, enjoying those blessed returns which only men of strict lives feel and know, and of which men of loose and godless lives cannot be made sensible, for spiritual things are spiritually discerned. At his entrance into this place, his friendship was much sought for by Dr. Hadrian Saravia, then, or about that time, made one of the prebends of Canterbury, a German by birth, and sometime a pastor both in Flanders and Holland, where he had studied and well considered the controverted points concerning episcopacy and sacrilege, and in England had a just occasion to declare his judgment concerning both, unto his brethren ministers of the Low Countries, which was accepted against by Theodore, Beza, and others, against whose exceptions he rejoined, and thereby became the happy author of many learned tracts writ in Latin, especially of three, one of the degrees of ministers, and of the bishop's superiority above the presbytery, a second against sacrilege, and a third of Christian obedience to princes, the last being occasioned by Gretzerus the Jesuit. And it is observable that when, in a time of church tumults, Beza gave his reasons to the Chancellor of Scotland for the abrogation of episcopacy in that nation, partly by letters, and more fully in a treatise of a threefold episcopacy, which he calls divine, human, and satanical, this Dr. Saravia had, by the help of Bishop Whitgift, made such an early discovery of their intentions that he had almost as soon answered that treatise as it became public, and he therein discovered how Beza's opinion did contradict that of Calvin's and his adherents, leaving them to interfere with themselves in point of episcopacy. But of these tracts it will not concern me to say more than that they were most of them dedicated to his and the Church of England's watchful patron, John Whitgift, the Archbishop, and printed about the time in which Mr. Hooker also appeared first to the world, in the publication of his first four books of ecclesiastical polity. This friendship being sought for by this learned doctor, you may believe was not denied by Mr. Hooker, who was by fortune so like him as to be engaged against Mr. Travers, Mr. Cartwright, and others of their judgment, in a controversy too like Dr. Saravius, so that in this year of 1595, and in this place of Bourne, these two excellent persons began a holy friendship, increasing daily to so high and mutual affections, that their two wills seemed to be but one and the same, and their designs, both for the glory of God and peace of the church, still assisting and improving each other's virtues and the desired comforts of a peaceable piety, which I have willingly mentioned because it gives a foundation to some things that follow. This parsonage of Bourne is from Canterbury three miles, and near to the common road that leads from that city to Dover, in which parsonage Mr. Hooker had not been twelve months, but his books and the innocency and sanctity of his life became so remarkable that many turned out of the road, and others, scholars especially, 
went purposely to see the man whose life and learning were so much admired and alas as our saviour said of st john baptist what went they out to see a man clothed in purple and fine linen no indeed but an obscure harmless man a man in poor clothes his loins usually girt in a coarse gown or canonical coat of a mean stature and stooping and yet more lowly in the thoughts of his soul his body worn out not with age but study and holy mortifications his face full of heat pimples begot by his inactivity and sedentary life and to this true character of his person let me add this of his disposition and behaviour god and nature blessed him with so blessed a bashfulness that as in his younger days his pupils might easily look him out of countenance so neither then nor in his age did he ever willingly look any man in the face and was of so mild and humble a nature that his poor parish clerk and he did never talk but with both their hats on or both off at the same time and to this may be added that though he was not purblind yet he was short or weak-sighted and where he fixed his eyes at the beginning of his sermon there they continued till it was ended and the reader has a liberty to believe that his modesty and dim sight were some of the reasons why he trusted mrs churchman to choose his wife this parish clerk lived till the third or fourth year of the late long parliament betwixt which time and mr hooker's death there had come many to see the place of his burial and the monument dedicated to his memory of sir william cooper who still lives and the poor clerk had many rewards for showing mr hooker's grave place and his said monument and did always hear mr hooker mentioned with commendations and reverence to all which he added his own knowledge and observations of his humility and holiness and in which such discourses the poor man was still more confirmed in his opinion of mr hooker's virtues and learning but it so fell out that about the said third or fourth year of the long parliament the then present parson of bourne was sequestered you may guess why and a genevan minister put into his good living this and other like sequestrations made the clerk express himself in a wonder and say they had sequestered so many good men that he doubted if his good master mr hooker had lived till now they would have sequestered him too it was not long before this intruding minister had made a party in and about the said parish that were desirous to receive the sacraments as in geneva to which end the day was appointed for a select company and forms and stools set about the altar or communion table for them to sit and eat and drink but when they went about this work there was a want of some joint stools which the minister sent the clerk to fetch and then to fetch cushions but not to kneel upon when the clerk saw them begin to sit down he began to wonder but the minister bade him cease wondering and lock the church door to whom he replied pray take you the keys and lock me out i will never come more into this church 
for all men will say my master hooker was a good man and a good scholar and i am sure it was not used to be thus in his day and report says the old man went presently home and died i do not say died immediately but within a few days after but let us leave this grateful clerk in his quiet grave and return to mr hooker himself continuing our observations of his christian behavior in this place where he gave a holy valediction to all the pleasures and allurements of earth possessing his soul in a virtuous quietness which he maintained by constant study prayers and meditations his use was to preach once every sunday and he or his curate to catechize after the second lesson in the evening prayer his sermons were neither long nor earnest but uttered with a grave zeal and humble voice his eyes always fixed on one place to prevent his imagination from wandering insomuch that he seemed to study as he spake the design of his sermons as indeed of all his discourses was to show reasons for what he spake and with these reasons such a kind of rhetoric as did rather convince and persuade than frighten men into piety studying not so much for matter which he never wanted as for apt illustrations to inform and teach his unlearned hearers by familiar examples and then make them better by convincing applications never laboring by hard words and then by heedless distinctions and sub-distinctions to amuse his hearers and get glory to himself but glory only to god which intention he would often say was as discernible in a preacher as a natural from an artificial beauty he never failed the sunday before every ember week to give notice of it to his parishioners persuading them both to fast and then to double their devotions for a learned and a pious clergy but especially the last saying often that the life of a pious clergyman was visible rhetoric and so convincing that the most godless men though they would not deny themselves the enjoyment of their present lusts did yet secretly wish themselves like those of the strictest lives and to what he persuaded others he added his own example of fasting and prayer and did usually every ember week take from the parish clerk the key of the church door into which place he retired every day and locked himself up for many hours and did the like most fridays and other days of fasting he would by no means omit the customary time of procession persuading all both rich and poor if they desired the preservation of love and their parish rights and liberties to accompany him in his perambulation and most did so in which perambulation he would usually express more pleasant discourse than at other times and would then always drop some loving and facetious observations to be remembered against the next year especially by the boys and young people still inclining them and all his present parishioners to meekness and mutual kindness and love because love thinks not evil but covers a multitude of infirmities he was diligent to inquire who of his parish were sick or anyways distressed and would often visit them unsent for 
supposing that the fittest time to discover to them those errors to which health and prosperity had blinded them and having by pious reasons and prayers moulded them into holy resolutions for the time to come he would incline them to confession and bewailing their sins with purpose to forsake them and then to receive the communion both as a strengthening of those holy resolutions and as a seal betwixt god and them of his mercies to their souls in case that present sickness did put a period to their lives and as he was thus watchful and charitable to the sick so he was as diligent to prevent lawsuits still urging his parishioners and neighbours to bear with each other's infirmities and live in love because as st john says he that lives in love lives in god for god is love and to maintain this holy fire of love constantly burning on the altar of a pure heart his advice was to watch and pray and always keep themselves fit to receive the communion and then to receive it often for it was both a confirming and strengthening of their graces this was his advice and at his entrance or departure out of any house he would usually speak to the whole family and bless them by name insomuch that as he seemed in his youth to be taught of god so he seemed in this place to teach his precepts as enoch did by walking with him in all holiness and humility making each day a step towards a blessed eternity and though in this weak and declining age of the world such examples are become barren and almost incredible yet let his memory be blessed by this true recordation because he that praises richard hooker praises god who hath given such gifts to men and let this humble and affectionate relation of him become such a pattern as may invite posterity to imitate these his virtues this was his constant behavior both at bourne and in all the places in which he lived thus did he walk with god and tread in the footsteps of primitive piety and yet as that great example of meekness and purity even our blessed jesus was not free from false accusations no more was this disciple of his this most humble most innocent holy man his was a slander parallel to that of chaste susannas by the wicked elders or that against st athanasius as it is recorded in his life for this holy man had heretical enemies a slander which this age calls trepanning the particulars need not a repetition and that it was false needs no other testimony than the public punishment of his accusers and their open confession of his innocency it was said that the accusation was contrived by a dissenting brother one that endured not church ceremonies hating him for his book's sake which he was not able to answer and his name hath been told me but i have not so much confidence in the relation as to make my pen fix a scandal on him to posterity i shall rather leave it doubtful till the great day of revelation but this is certain that he lay under the great charge and the anxiety of this accusation and kept it secret to himself for many months 
and, being a helpless man, had lain longer under this heavy burden, but that the protector of the innocent gave such an accidental occasion as forced him to make it known to his two dearest friends, Edwin Sandys and George Cramner, who were so sensible of their tutor's sufferings that they gave themselves no rest till by their disquisitions and diligence they had found out the fraud and brought him the welcome news that his accusers did confess they had wronged him and begged his pardon to which the good man's reply was to this purpose the lord forgive them and the lord bless you for this comfortable news now have i a just occasion to say with solomon friends are born for the days of adversity and such you have proved to me and to my god i say as did the mother of st john baptist thus hath the lord dealt with me in the day wherein he looked upon me to take away my reproach among men and o oh my god neither my life nor my reputation are safe in my own keeping but in thine, who didst take care of me when I yet hanged upon my mother's breast. Blessed are they that put their trust in thee, O Lord, for when false witnesses were risen up against me, when shame was ready to cover my face, when my nights were restless, when my soul thirsted for a deliverance as the heart panteth after the rivers of water, then thou, Lord, didst hear my complaints, pity my condition, and art now become my deliverer, and as long as I live I will hold up my hands in this manner, and magnify thy mercies, who didst not give me over as a prey to mine enemies. The net is broken, and they are taken in it. O oh, blessed are they that put their trust in thee, and no prosperity shall make me forget those days of sorrow, or to perform those vows that I have made to thee in the days of my affliction. For with such sacrifices thou, O God, art well pleased, and I will pay them. End of chapter 3, part 2